and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jeffrey Melnick, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. We will discuss his new book, Charles Manson's Creepy Crawl, The Many Lives of America's Most Infamous Family, which is published by Arcade Publishing. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Brian. I'm so glad to have you on. Um, I have to say, I just devoured this book, which is so, so good. And I will confess <laughs> that I, I'm a, you know, a bit of a Manson aficionado like uh-huh. yourself, but <laughs> this was really different than anything else that I'd read. And I just really wanted to start the show by saying how much I enjoyed it. I really appreciate hearing that. You know how it is when you get stuff out in the world and then there's that deafening silence for a while. And, and so it's really, it's wonderful to, to hear your feedback. I appreciate it. <laughs> so among other things, in your book, you do kind of recognize the extent to which the Manson family has been the subject of like countless true crime stories. And one of the things I really liked was the way you sort of recognized the structure of a true, true crime story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of conventional structure of a true crime story and sort of like how that works. Great. Yeah, that's a great place to start because I, you know, I start when when you study the Manson family, the Manson case, the murders, the trial, you have to start with Vincent Bugliosi. Obviously, he owns the brand, as we um, uh, have learned to say in contemporary culture on Manson. And, and he, he really established, you know, what you're calling the conventions of uh, the true crime genre in at, you know, what's at once an, an incredibly capacious form, his book is whatever, 500 pages, um, but also very narrowly construed or constructed um, form because it's basically a whodunit, right? And and that's, you're supposed to sort of figure out, um, you know, it's, it's um, what in contemporary fiction we call a police procedural. You know, the cops show up on the scene, um, they figure out what the crime was, and then they spend the rest of the time figuring out who did it, and then they put the bad guy away. But with the Manson case, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty early on in the work, I was kind of knocked back by the weird aspect of the true crime work that Bugliosi did because everybody knew right away who did it, right? I, there wasn't like a big mystery. Um, but but the mystery came in, in, and this is where I jump into the um, into the historiography or the narrating of the case. The question is, what, what was the it in the whodunit? Um, that Manson was accused of, like w- Manson wasn't accused of committing murder. Um, he wasn't accused of any violent crime at all. He was accused of something much more diffuse and weird and creepy to to, to get the word from uh, my title in there. And and so that's why that that's why I got so engrossed in doing the research was it, the the question I kept coming back to is what was Manson being and and what was the Manson family being accused of exactly? There were these these. Um, you know, these horrible murders over two nights in, in August 1969, of course, but that didn't really seem to be the weight of the matter. The further I got got into it, you know, the, the more I studied, the more it seemed like Manson was, was really being accused of, of just upsetting a number of different apple carts, um, upsetting what a family was supposed to look like, upsetting what a good man acted like in a family, um, upsetting, um, for a lot of people in the counterculture, upsetting what a hippie should act like. And so that's where I really, that's where I put my flag down. I put it with the it rather than the who, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, I mean, the, the true crime genre has become such a kind of familiar way of thinking about sort of crime and criminal activity and mm-hmm. how we tell narratives about it oh, yeah, that we yeah. almost don't really see the form anymore. Right. But, right. I, you know, and, and that, what, really what, what I really liked about your book was that you're doing something totally different from that in your book. Like you totally like strip the true crime genre down and reconstruct it into something else. But in this interview, because I fear that some listeners may not be all that familiar with Charles Manson and the Manson family and the Manson family murders, I wonder if you could actually do a little bit of the true crime structure and start by just reminding people what actually happened. Like what was the crime? That's a great question. Yeah, that's great because I, I, I'm really glad you asked because I always assume um, and whenever I give talks about the book, I always make people and, you know, I make people sort of wave their hands at me if they already think they know the important details. Um, but this really breaks down. This really skews particularly generationally um, uh, and, and it skews depending on what part of the country you were raised in uh, or if you were raised in the United States at all. At all. So um, Manson uh, was a small time criminal who had spent most of his life. Um, he was born in the mid thirties, spent most of his life, uh, in jail, was released from prison. Amazingly. Well, he, he got out a few times, but the time he got out, um, that matters for our purposes was literally in the so-called summer of love, 1967. He hits the hate Ashbury, um, and begins putting his family to what became known as his family together, um, in Northern California, made it to LA by the end of 68. And then in 69 is the year that we're, we're concerned with. Um, he really establishes this, what various people, you know, call a cult, a commune, a family, a crime syndicate, um, depends who you're asking. And they were very involved, the Manson family, it's, it's Charlie Manson, um, and then mostly a bunch of young women who are living out in Spawn Ranch, um, which is in Chatsworth, uh, California. And they're living in Spawn Ranch, they're completely, and this is, you know, something I hope we'll, we'll have time to talk more about later, get themselves completely enmeshed in the counterculture uh, of Southern California within a year's time or so. They become friends with, um, you know, uh, at least one beach boy and they become, uh, you know, sort of party uh, uh, favors and, you know, in, in, in a few different ways for various of what we call uh, members of what we call the new Hollywood or the music counterculture. They're running around with, you know, um, all the folks who who um, we now recognize as the musical royalty of that era. But then, and, and here's where the, the, the crime comes in, but then um, there are uh, two sets of murders that take place in uh, August, uh, either 8th and, it, people date it differently depending on how you want to count it, but people uh, will either say August 8th and 9th or August 9th and 10th. The first night, um, and this will be the more familiar one to folks, particularly all the folks who saw uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie uh, last summer. The first one is um, at 10,050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, and it's at the home of Sharon Tate. Um, Sharon Tate, who's married to the film director Roman Polanski and is an actor uh, in her own right. She's there with a few friends, um, her friend Jay Sebring, who's a celebrity hairdresser, um, and two other friends of hers. And then there's also another guy, um, uh, Stephen Parent, who's coming to visit somebody who lives um, in a kind of carriage house behind her house. So the four folks in Sharon Tate's house and Stephen Parent are killed that night by members of Charles Manson's family. The next night, 
uh, some of the same, some different members of Manson's family go um, to uh, Los I always say it wrong, and people in Los Angeles correct me every, every time because I, I say Los Feliz, uh, Los Fit. I'm, I'm not even going to try to say it right. They go to Waverly Drive where the LaBiancas live, Rosemary LaBianca, Lino LaBianca. Um, there's no evidence Manson knew them, might have known a guy who lived next door to them. Anyway, members of the Manson family, possibly with Manson's help, um, at least help tying them up, kill Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. So that's August. 1969. Um, not much happens in the case until December of that year um, when uh, Manson and a few of his followers, uh, for lack of a better word, are um, arrested and indicted. Um, and uh, and then it becomes a huge, I mean, it, it obviously became a huge national story, the crime itself, right in August of 69. But when Manson um, appears to be the, the mastermind, then um, for lack of a better phrase, the the population of the United States flips its wig um, because it looks like a hippie and his commune were responsible for these crimes. And so it upsets all these ideas about who hippies are, how they live, um, what happened to peace and love, uh, and so on. So that's the sort of thumbnail um, uh, of what happened. He goes on trial, Manson and um, a few of the Manson, what at the time were called the Manson girls, um, and Tex Watson, um, another one of his followers, um, are the main um, targets of the investigation. Uh, the investigation's a mess in a number of different ways. I won't get lost in the weeds on that, um, but there's there's a sort of competition between the LAPD and, um, and the sheriff's office trying to sort of, uh, get together in the investigation. Finally, they realized that the two nights, for a long time, it wasn't clear that the, the crimes on the two nights um, were committed by the same people, even though there were so many things tying them together, including the writing and blood on the wall um, and the manner of, of the killings. So uh, finally, it gets clear to LAPD and LASO that um, it was the it was the same people doing the crimes, and they, they finally um, circle the wagons around Manson and, and the members of his family. Mm. Hmm. Mm. Well, so <clears throat> among other things, I really love the title of your book, the Charles Manson's creepy crawl. And I mm. want you to talk a yeah. little bit about what you mean by the creepy crawl. Right. But in addition, there was another element of the book that really hit me. So you talk about Rick Perlstein's book, Nixon land, mm -hmm. right? Which has been like a massive uh, influence in kind of thinking about the time period that you're talking about in your book, but you propose a kind of dark, even darker, you mean in darker a way, yeah. kind of kind of counter story, which is to think about it as Manson land, right? And so I wonder if you could kind of talk about this idea of Nixon land yeah. versus Manson land, and especially in relation to the term creepy crawl, which I think is actually really implicated by yeah. that observation. Absolutely. Great. That's a great question, Brian. Thanks. So let me see if I can take this in anything like a logical order. Um, because I want to do justice to your question. So let me first of all say where the phrase creepy crawl comes from and why I landed on it as um, at least part of my title. Um, so, but well before the murders, Manson and members of his family would occasionally go out on these far forays. They'd leave Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch was the old movie ranch um, where they were living uh, with the permission of the owner. Uh, and they'd 
go out to houses in and around Los Angeles, they would, it's hard to even talk about because it is so creepy. They would literally break into houses where people were sleeping and they wouldn't steal anything and they wouldn't commit any violence. They would just move stuff around. Um, and they would just do it to this sort of threshold level so that when the folks woke up the next morning, they would know someone had been there. So that sort of like got, that became sort of like, like guiding framework or metaphor for the whole book was the idea that like Manson's in our heads. Um, and he got in people's heads pretty quickly in the LA area in 68 and 69 and, and sort of moved mental furniture around. Um, and for a lot of folks, it was, it was a fun experience like Dennis Wilson, um, and Terry Melcher, who maybe we'll talk about uh, a little bit later, um, who's the son of Doris Day and also in the music business, they like this moving furniture because they like, like you know, in the sense of like Manson and these young women are coming in and they're proposing ways of partying, of hanging out, of living together, of engaging sexually that these guys are all for. But the dark side is is the creepy crawl. They're going into these houses and they're messing with people's heads. Um, and that's where I got really interested in the family as this this kind of cultural formation that we cannot shake. Um, and that's why I went to the Rick Perlstein book, because Rick Perlstein's, you know, Nixon land is this real, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean this even a tiny bit as a criticism, because I love that book and also I'm very much um, influenced by it. But it's a very top down um, kind of narrative, traditional political history. Not that he doesn't get street level at all. He does. But that the, the, the origin point is the idea that the culture is shaped by the most powerful people. My kind of slightly tongue in cheek, but actually I kind of mean it like folks often do when they speak tongue, tongue in cheek, um, is that what if we looked at this ex-con who had this ragtag bunch of young women, many of whom were runaways, many of whom had been abused in their family of origin, um, and looked from sort of that bottom place up and said, how are they able to kind of um, get into our houses, get into our minds, get into our culture um, just by coming in and moving some furniture around? Um, and that's back to the whodunit question, you know, is, is, is in the book, one of the things I suggest is, is that the, the most upsetting thing about Manson is maybe not that he directed these murders, but that he had these young women who were in his thrall. And, and there's this whole question about like, how is the traditional family, the so-called traditional family, which isn't that traditional, but the post-World War II, mom, dad, couple kids, sitcom, Ozzie and Harriet family, how is it falling apart in this moment? And so Manson is, is with the creepy crawl, like literally going into people's houses and saying, I, I can mess with you. But he also was doing that already by taking these young women. You know, he spoke very eloquently about these young women. He said, you, you threw them out. You threw them by the highway. I just came along and picked them up. And, you know, and gave them a place to live. And there's something, you know, I, I've gotten accused in a few, you know, right wing uh, places of, of being, you know, pro Manson or something. And, and that's sort of a weird, <laughs> weird thing to have to defend against. But um, that aspect of Manson, his eloquence about certain young women being throwaways, um, particularly women who were from families where there was, was kind of dramatic um, uh, psychological and, phys and or physical abuse. Um, and he was a really powerful male figure who was able to give them, you know, a, a relatively um, comfortable place to live. And, and he was upsetting our family arrangements. You know, he was upsetting um, the idea that we know what a daddy looks like. We know how a daddy acts. Right. And and it's it's in some very perverse ways because he's 
having sex with these young women. Now, the fact of the matter is some of these fathers of the, the families of origin were also sexually involved, um, their daughters by the best accounts. Um, and so you see what I'm saying is that like he came in and, and said, I, I, I'm just, I'll be your mirror, right? I'll, I'll show you what a family looks like. And it's not a pretty picture. Um, and so the creepy crawl then opens up this much larger question for me of, of like why we can't shake Manson. And, and it is because he's this kind of uncomfortable secret sharer, right? Like he's, he's showing us, um, you know, the dark side of the American family in this moment where a lot of people are trying to figure out what's going wrong with the family. I write, one thing I write about is this amazing um, White House committee that's convened in Nixon's White House, a committee on children um, that I'll, I'll just note as a side, just because the Tom Hanks movie just came out, um, it includes Mr. Rogers. Um, and this committee is radical. It's like shockingly radical in their conclusions. And, and one of their conclusions is, is that family doesn't have to mean a mother and father, um, you know, at the helm. It can mean a lot of different arrangements. It can mean a commune, it can mean people who just agree to raise children together. Um, and so that's a real concern of mine in the book is, is how these crimes and what reporters and, and true crime writers and then novelists later and filmmakers picked up about the family as a challenge um, to this formation that we call the traditional family, but was clearly a, not that traditional, and B, um, not that steady or solid of a formation. Mm-hmm. Well, so one of the things that I really took away from your book was the way that it almost seems like you're using Manson as a metaphor and looking at these different areas of kind of American cultural practice and asking what sort of Manson as metaphor can tell us about these different aspects of American cultural life. And so you kind of break the book down into like the first section is about family. The section, the second section is sort of about like economic geography. The third section Mm -hmm. is like the criminal justice system. And then the fourth section is sort of about kind of creative expression and cultural meaning. Mm -hmm. Right. And and, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could like talk a little bit about that segmentation and a kind of why you think Manson and the Manson family and the Manson murders are such a kind of powerful metaphor for what was happening. And also maybe sort of like the difference between the way that you're looking at this phenomenon and the very kind of teleological sort Mm -hmm. of causal Mm -hmm. kind of story that a bunch of other kind of cultural commentators have told about the same story. Great. So I want to, I want to, that's a great question. I want to start um, by throwing in a word that is in one of my, my favorite books that I taught um, uh, this semester. Um, and it's a book that's about uh, who wrote Song Dixie. That's the, essentially the headline of the book. Um, and it's a, a, a great book by a couple of um, uh, uh, Howard, a couple of folks, Howard and, and Judith Sachs. And, and they use this word early in the book. And I don't know if scholars use it a lot. I haven't seen it that much. Um, but they say, they're not going to be held back by the claims of facticity. And I just really love that. Um, and and I, I danced around that concept a lot in the book because I am interested in how other folks construct facticity. And that's the whole third section uh, of the book about true crime. And, you know, I'm interested in, in you know, Bugliosi's fact claims and Ed Sanders' fact claims and, and other folks who have, who have tried to narrate um, the case in some kind of positivistic, clear, as you said, teleological, you know, um, uh, manner. But 
but the real, I mean, that's, that's a work I had to do in the book, but the real, the real thrill of the book for me, and, and, and here's a phrase we use in, in my field a lot in American studies is, is sort of balancing the claims of the real against the claims of the representational, and then trying to sort of always stay aware that the real and the representational the fiction, the films, the music create each other. Like we don't know what the real is without all the art that we have that helps us understand what we think is real. Um, and likewise, there can't be any art about Manson without an actual, you know, real Manson. But it, in doing the research, it very quickly became clear to me that the, the facticity, you know, the, what, what, the, what actually happened, the who done it, um, really was much less important than the metaphorical weight that the, you know, that the case took on. And, and the metaphorical weight was, established really early and often um, by so many different people. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of mind blown by this. So many people, so many different people across the cultural and political spectrum. So like you have this weird, like hail, you know, um, uh, hail fellows, well-met uh, experience of Ed Sanders, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, will be familiar with who's, a poet and a rock musician with the Fugs and an anti-war activist and just kind of like a a, a a 50s free culture hero who one of the few 50s sort of beatniks who kind of makes it into the 60s. Allen Ginsberg is obviously one of the other ones um, as as an important cultural leader. And he ends up not feeling that different about Manson um, from what Vincent Pugliosi, who's like a vaguely right wing you know, prosecutor, assistant district attorney um, in California, um, their narratives are a little bit different, but their framing of Manson as a threat to the social order that they care about um, ends up being quite similar. And it and it's um, that was a lot of my work in the book. That was a lot of the years I spent trying to figure out what was so threatening about Manson. I know there's something cruel about what I'm about to say, but I'm, I, I just want to get it out there. The crimes were horrifying. Any time a life is taken is horrifying. I always want to make sure that I that I uh, am clear that I have the deepest sympathy for the, the families and the the generations following who who are who are affected by these crimes. But the fact of the matter is, these are not. It's funny. Manson gets called a serial killer a lot in in a kind of shorthand, but he's not. It's two nights. Um, to put it in the crassest terms, the body count is not that high. Um, and so I, I kept circling around this question of like, what's Manson being accused of killing in addition to these seven people? Um, and, and so the, the kind of locus classicus for, for that um, question is, is Joan Didion's work, um, where she basically says Manson killed the 60s. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and compressing, but it's, it's really, you know, I, I think I'm representing, uh, correctly. She's, she's got that line in the white album about, you know, that everybody around her knew that something had to give. And the, the most famous phrase is probably the paranoia was fulfilled. And that's what Manson, that's how he, if there's any overarching narrative to my work, that that's the claim, um, that Manson was the fulfillment of all the paranoid fantasies that were circling in right-wing circles, in counterculture circles, um, that's all the immediate reporting is like from, from the right, it's all like, yeah, we knew the hippies were going to end up doing something terrible like this. And from the left or from within the counterculture, it, it's, it's more like, what's the, the, you know, who put this evil seed inside our culture? Was it, you know, there's this new, um, uh, 
there's another new book on on the Manson case by Tom O'Neill that that takes a whole other tack than than I do, which which is he takes the sort of like the CIA was dropping, you know, um, demon seeds in in various um, elements of the counterculture. And I'm I, I'm a leftist who's happy when anyone does the work of showing us how the CIA was, uh, you know, was infiltrating and upsetting, uh, you know, the Black Panthers and um, various other um, left-wing student organizations and so on. It, it doesn't hold a lot of weight in the Manson case, but I appreciate the the, the kind of sentiment in O'Neill's book, um, which is that there were a lot of people in the counterculture who were aware that they weren't safe and that there were attempts to kind of undo the work that they, they hoped they were doing, the anti-war work, um, the uh, the various kinds of liberation movements that, that intersected with the counterculture. Um, and that's where I got really interested. I was like, how do you balance Ed Sanders and Vincent Pugliosi as basically being on the same anti-Manson team? Um, and, and that's where I got so interested in Manson as metaphor as this kind of terrifying specter. You know, it's like this real, like, what kind of boogeyman is he? And and that's why in the book, when I, in the last section, when I turned to all the cultural representations of Manson, why I got so interested in the fact that he literally becomes this framework for a whole load of horror movies um, in the early to mid 1970s, including Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, and so on. So that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, Brian, to the, <laughs> the question of, yeah. of, of um, you know, what, what's Manson's metaphor? And the metaphor is he killed the 60s. Um, and he really needs to be punished over and over again uh, for that. And his acolytes need to be punished over and over again. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just seems like he you really crystallized the way in like in which Manson sort of concretizes the dialectic. You know, I mean, you almost have like Bugliosi's thesis, Sanders's antithesis <laughs> and, and, and Mance's synthesis right. as, as right. it were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like he brings the two opposing forces together in right. a weird way. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the shock. And this is, I don't know how, how into the weeds you want to get about Ed Sanders, but that's, I mean, this was where I, you know, I, I really had my historian hat on and I, I, I got my, got my, you know, I got wrist deep in the archives and, and read everything I could um, by and about Sanders in that era. Because Sanders goes out to L.A., you know, he's a New York guy. He goes out to L.A. to, to cover the trial for the L.A. Free Press. And his early journalism, it's amazing. I, I encourage folks, it's, it's lots of it's online now folks to take a look at it. Um, it's fascinating because his early reporting, I don't want to say that it's fully pro-family, but it's he's interested in how they're being used um, by the the legal and, and judicial forces. He goes out to Spawn Ranch. He writes very approvingly of the music that they make. Um, he basically says they're better than Crosby, Stills, Nash. Um, and he for a while is really um, interested in the kind of challenge they pose to the dominant culture. Something happens. It's not clear exactly what something happens about midway through the trial um, that really sends him around the bend. And he totally, between his early reporting and what ends up in his book, which was called The Family, which came out in 1971, his is really the first major book to come out about the case, is he's completely conspiracist by the time the book comes out. He's got a chapter in the book that he's later sued for and forced to take out of the book about how the processed church in England was kind of by remote control. 
going nancy and they're behind the crimes um and he ends up cooking up these theories that he never gave up i mean he's for decades been um prosecuting this case he had another book a few years back that was putatively about sharon tate but was really again sort of rehashing a lot of these claims about manson and it really i mean i i think you know the what what happened for for um Sanders was he got out there and he and, and he saw these folks, the members of the family, you know, Lynette Fromm and uh, Susan Atkins and uh, Leslie Van Cowden. And, and, and he thought these are these are people I could run with. These are folks who, who I could imagine in my circles and they're killers. And so I need to, like, create a new math that will explain that. Um, and that's where all the kind of remote control, mind control, um, puppet master, that that whole sort of brainwash um, theoretical construct gets, begins to be developed. And it's between Sanders um, and Vincent Pugliosi, basically, this kind of, you know, the beatnik and the, and the cop, you know, um, and, and they're not literally working together, but in a cultural sense, I, I think they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that kind of, kind of charisma and also like kind of weird, unique creativity of both Manson and also his sort of like related compatriot, Bobby Beausoleil, who I think doesn't get as much attention. Like these were, these were people who actually like had a sort of impact and, and were admired Mm -hmm. by notable people. What does that tell us about Los Angeles and about kind of creative culture in America at that point in time? And sort of like, what did Manson mean as a creative figure? Great, great. So, I mean, you know, it's funny because Ed Sanders sort of grudgingly had to acknowledge that Manson had charisma, had talent. You know, I think it's in the book or maybe it's in earlier journalism where he refers to Manson as a performance criminal. And that's, that's really, you know, Sanders trying to get it at the theatricality of the crimes themselves, you know, the blood on the wall and the the sort of carefully scripted lines that, um, uh, that members of the family said, um, during the actual crimes. But Manson was a major cultural figure in LA in 68 and 69. This is something that I think some folks will, will definitely think I overstate, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stick to it. Um, for now, Manson is running in, in 68 and 69 with all of the major players of the L.A. rock, folk rock um, industry. You know, his the person he's really trying to get to, I, I mentioned his name before, is Terry Melcher, who's the son of Doris Day, but in this context more important for being a major producer. Um, and he's, you know, by this point, by the time Manson meets him, he's worked with the Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders and a number of lesser acts, but he is a major, major um, record producer out there. Uh, Manson, no doubt met John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Manson's a musician. He mm. plays at parties. He plays out at Spawn Ranch. The general consensus is he's pretty good. Um, mm. he's sort of undisciplined. He, when he gets a chance to go into the studio, he kind of freezes up and can't figure out how to do his thing in that context. Um, the one person I always like to quote, cause he's the only person, um, who really seems to be honest about this is Neil Young. Um, who heard Manson play a lot and said he was great. If he could have had the band that Dylan had on bringing it all back home, he would have made it huge. He just needed a little structure. Um, and so Neil, you know, he'll always say that. Um, lots of folks will say they heard Manson, thought he was really talented, you know, needed some discipline. Um, Bobby Beausoleil, who you mentioned, is a major 
creative talent. He was in 1968. He is still today. Um, he's still in jail. Um, he's up in Vacaville. He's the only person I, um, from the family who are connected to the family who I interviewed um, for the book because I, I was particularly interested in how little attention he's gotten, um, at least since the mid-70s. You know, when Truman Capote interviewed him, there have been very few people um, who have taken Bobby seriously um, as a creative artist, as a person, just as a person in this story. He's a young, young guy in LA in these years, and he's making it. I mean, he's playing with Arthur Lee from Love. He's playing, um, he's tied up with, you know, I don't think he ever directly plays with Zappa and the mothers, but he's tied up in that scene. Man, there, there are some theories that Manson really brought Bobby into the picture because he thought Bobby would be his bridge, um, meeting some of these people to getting, you know, sort of more um, involved in the LA music business. So these are folks, Bobby Beausoleil, Charles Manson, they're making music and professional musicians are seeing them as, I don't want to say colleagues, but as people on the scene, people who had some talent, people who um, they wanted to be around. Now, it's certainly possible that they mostly wanted to be around Manson because they wanted access to the women uh, that they think Manson controlled. But but I think Neil Young's testimony is really worth, um, seriously, Manson, by, by all accounts, was a really charismatic performer. He brought people... Um, into the scene. And one of the things this tells us about LA in this moment is that it's kind of chaotic. You know, it's, it's, you know, anyone who has studied the history of popular music over the course of the 20th century knows that there's these waves of kind of centralization, corporatization, and then these challenges, you know, and um, in the late fifties, the challenges were from independent record companies recording doo-wop and other rhythm and blues. And, and there was just like music sprouting up everywhere. And then the majors figured out how to sort of take them over and incorporate them. And, sort of centralize it again. In the late 60s, there's a, there's this moment like um, like this too, where musicians are kind of taking over um, and demanding control over their product, right? And so you're moving from that Elvis model of just sort of a singer who shows up, cuts his vocal, and doesn't have that much to do with the rest of the product. And you're moving to this more kind of like auteur model of production. Um, and Manson is nothing if not an auteur. Like he... he He's in charge of his thing. He's in charge of his family. He's in charge of his music. He's in charge of his look. Um, you know, he's a very conscious guy. Um, mm. And and I think these other guys, Dennis Wilson, Terry Melcher, um, you know, John Phillips, I think they recognize him as a kindred spirit. They backpedal real, real fast once it's clear that he's in some way responsible for the crimes. And they do that, you know, that... Um, that internet meme of Mariah Carey shaking her head and, you know, saying, I don't know her. Um, that's like, that becomes the, the Manson story. Once he's arrested is everyone says like, Oh yeah, I might've met him once. You know, I don't really remember, but all the, the good data we have says he was a major player um, mm. on the LA scene. And it was a really open scene. Like these folks, you know, like Wilson, Terry Melcher, maybe they were just slumming, you know, maybe they were just having a little fun with, you know, the poor freaks, but the, the members of the family were, they, if you went to the clubs on the Sunset Strip, if you went to parties at Dennis Wilson's house, I mean, they basically moved into Dennis Wilson's house for up in uh, Pacific Palisades for, for a period of a few months in 69. So took over his house that Wilson basically had to move out <laughs> and get his manager ultimately to, to, to try to get them out of the house. He went to live with his his buddy um, Greg Jacobson, because because they had just sort of taken over, they were they were on the scene, and Manson mm -hmm. was 
Manson was in charge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it totally hit me that like in a weird way, Manson was almost like the first folk punk Mm -hmm. in this weird way. And like, and in the last section of your book, you talk about sort of Manson's influence on the counterculture. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the sort of Manson metaphor meant for punk rock and for kind of countercultural expression in the seventies and eighties, because I mean, I'll be honest. I I mean, I remember this from my own childhood. Yeah. Yeah. That you remember the, the, the sort of punk embrace of Manson. Yes. Yeah. So that's the wild thing that happens is, you know, as, as you know, cultures, I mean, I teach, I'm a cultural historian. I teach cultural history classes, mostly cultures, messy. It doesn't follow a straight line. So you get this, you know, what turns out in retrospect to be a relatively brief period, period in the early to mid seventies of Manson as figure of horror. Um, Buliosi's book comes out in seventy four. The miniseries based in his book comes out in seventy six. That sets this dominant frame of Manson as as you know the wild hair, crazy, bug eyed, you know, figure of horror. But then, like interestingly, by the late seventies, the story starts to change and really central here are you know this pair of brothers um one of whom is greg ginn from black flag um the the really crucial la punk band and and the other is his brother who uses a different last name uh raymond pettibone who's the visual artist um who at that time mostly is busy doing all the 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 visual work for black flag he designs the logo he does all their tour posters and Black Flag just completely embraces Manson as this figure of anarchy, of um, negation, of saying no to the dominant culture. Um, and so he's all over their early um, uh, sort of visual culture materials. Um, they call one of their first tours a creepy crawl. Um, Raymond Pettibone creates these amazing posters, you know, with Manson's face and the band's logo and so on. So, so black, it starts with Black Flag, but they're really, you know, that period I talked about before with the horror movies and Bugliosi's book, that turns out to just be like a brief and relatively, I want to say, unimportant preface to what then turns into 30 odd years of Manson as this kind of you know, available figure for folks who just want to, you know, epate la bourgeoisie. They want to say no to their parents. They want to say no to the dominant culture. And we're not done with that, right? Because it starts with punk in the seventies and really just continue, like feeds right in um, to what I guess we now call the alt rock or indie rock, what at the time we called college rock um, of the mid to late 1980s. And so he appears in sometimes really direct fashion, like when the Lemonheads you know, cover a song of his, sometimes in more obscure but really profound fashion, like um, when the Pixies start their song Wave of Mutilation with a kind of broken quotation from one of Manson's songs, one of Manson's most famous songs that the Beach Boys actually covered, more or less, um, was called Cease to Exist. They changed the title um, and put it on the B-side of one of their singles and then later put it on one of their records. And Manson obviously had some beef um, with them because he didn't get paid for it, but the Pixies, it, it, so Manson becomes part of like the folk culture of punk rock and alternative rock. So they open their song wave of mutilation with the line cease to exist. And they know, and, and what's so interesting to me is not just that they pick that line, but they, they must know that plenty of people in their audience will get the joke. 
you know, that they're, they're name checking, they're, they're shouting out um, to Charlie Manson. And he's all over the culture. He's on the shirts, you know, Charlie don't surf. He's loads of people cover his song, cover his songs in punk rock, in heavy metal, he guns and roses do a version. And so he does not, he doesn't leave, you know, after that, because he's, he's all over the punk rock of the seventies as this just, you know, this shorthand way of giving the finger to your parents, you know, the folks from, um, various punk rock groups say like, oh yeah, we did that Manson stuff because we knew it would piss our parents off. Um, so sometimes it's on that silly, you know, suburban garage punk level, but sometimes it is more profound. Um, like in the Pixies song where it ends up becoming this opening line for a song that I've lived with for a long time now. And I still feel like I'm, I'm just figuring it out. Um, but it seems to be about, a you know, a culture in decline and, and these Japanese businessmen who are driving their cars into the sea because they have such shame at how they failed their families. Um, and so that kind of like way of using Manson as as a uh, a tool to like dig into various aspects of your culture that are a mess that need to be addressed that um, are are out of control that just never stops from the late seventies on. And in the book, I make the claim that that's in punk rock from the late seventies to the early nineties. But then, really, I think hip hop takes over, um, and Manson becomes uh, a, a just steady figure from you know, late eighties NWA, um, uh, mentioning him in a song to, you know, whatever last year's mention was. And I luckily have, you know, friends and colleagues and, uh, Manson comrades around the world who always send me, you know, whatever the newest thing they heard is that mentions Manson and, and he just hasn't left. Um, and, and it's in so much American music from the punk of the late seventies to hip hop and, uh, more avant-garde, you know, there's a group called death grips that have, um, sampled Manson, at least once mentioned him at least once. Um, there's a, you know, you, you use the phrase folk punk. There's a, a sort of folk punk musician named Jeffrey Lewis, who has a brand new song um, who mentions uh, Manson. It's a character who wonders why he's so obsessed with Manson and his girlfriend doesn't seem to care. Um, and, and so it, it's just, you know, it's one of those cultural templates that we just can't um, seem to, to toss out. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing the book, because one of the things that I loved about it more than anything else was the richness of the material you brought to the book. I mean, like I could feel the archives <laughs> like seeping through the pores of every sentence of that book. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what that experience was like and why you think that's important to doing this kind of work. Great. Thanks for asking that. Cause first of all, you give me the opportunity to tell my favorite anecdote, which is the archive is us and the archive doesn't stop growing. And so of course, like many writers, I had a hard time figuring out when it was time to stop doing the research um, and get down to business. And then one day my, my older kid, who's, who's now 30 and who's probably, um, in his early twenties, then look, looked across the table at me and said, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's time to stop researching and time to start writing. Cause otherwise you just have a very weird hobby. Um, and, and I really, you know, I, I understood what he was saying, you know, cause he was like, you can get lost in this stuff. Um, and it doesn't end. And, and so to that, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to keep thinking in that direction. The, one of the books that really got me going on my project was um, a novel by a guy named John Kane. It's not a really well-known um, novel, but I, I wish it got more attention. And it's a book about Manson obsessives and, and um, Manson collectors. And it's, a, it's about this premise that 
there's a like a snuff film, a tape somewhere of the murders and collectors are trying to find it. But it's really just like an occasion to say, why are we so obsessed? And so that's like that's my archive, really, um, is the the hint I found in that book, which is, um, you know, this this book that says to us, like, why can't we stop making Manson stuff and collecting Manson stuff? Um, and that was really um, that was really the framework that got me going on the work was that I wasn't going to be able to capture all of it, but that I had to spend a good amount of time, you know, sort of casting the net um, out as far and as wide as I could. Um, because I ended up finding stuff in areas of cultural production that are really not my specialty in art photography and in opera, um, and in avant-garde poetry, you know, areas that are really not in my wheelhouse. I'm, you know, I'm a cultural historian. I can handle film. I can handle popular music. I can handle, um, you know, television shows and, uh, you know, popular and high literary fiction. But I, it, it, one thing that happened that, that was kind of thrilling and daunting was I, I realized that everybody was in the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, there wasn't an area of cultural production where somebody hadn't jumped in. There's, you know, gay camp theatrical productions um, about Manson. There's this opera about Manson. There, you know, it's it's just all over the place. And 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 I really, um, you know, in some ways, I was taking my um, my my um, inspiration from folks who have focused in on a particular figure. There's a, another American Studies scholar, um, William Gravener, who wrote a book about Patty Hearst. Um, who also did this, this kind of work and, and he was a little less, you know, his book's a little thinner. It's a little less obsessive than mine. Um, but he did that work of sort of saying, how, you know, how have we lived with that story? How have we retold that story? And Patty Hearst, we doesn't infuse the culture in anything like the degree, um, that Manson does. So partly I was trying to get at volume itself as a meaningful framework. Um, you know, sometimes the amount of cultural material, um, there's a line from Marx that I'm trying to remember now, sometimes quantity is quality. Um, and, and that was what I was trying to sort of capture here is that the amount of Manson material is itself a characteristic, um, of our cultural history, um, that we, that there's an obsessiveness, that there's a trying to get to the bottom of things. There's, um, this, um, in, in true crime, I mean, there's plenty of folks who, and I, I honestly, sincerely feel bad about this, pick up my book and are very disappointed because I have nothing new about the case to say. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have new details of the case. I didn't, you know, um, I don't have any smoking guns or, you know, um, you know, moments in the trial transcript that have been overlooked or anything like that. I don't, that's not the work I'm doing. But but there there is a real cultural desperate need to st- like still try to figure this story out. Um, and that's what, I mean, that's, you know, in all my, a lot of my scholarly work, that's been, that's been my, my goal is to sort of say what, like, what stories do we keep telling? Um, and why do we keep telling them? And in what form, uh, do we keep telling them? I, I, you know, I know your one of your specialties is copyright. And so I'm sure you've, you've dug into the negative land, um, case that I write about, um, in the book. And, and one of the things, um, in, in that case, in there, um, helter stupid, I don't even know what to call it anymore, installation performance piece is that they were just trying to like shine a light on that reality that we keep on telling this story over and over. If I say helter skelter to a lot of folks, they're going to first think of Manson and not the Beatles song. Um, and so that was, that was sort of the, the knot I was trying to untie, um, Mm. is, is, you know, how come we, we just keep going around the same track, but we run the, Mm. you know, we run the race a little bit differently every time. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and like one of the things that really hit me, and in closing, so I wonder if you could reflect on this, really, because it hit me about your book it, because I've seen it in so many other areas of sort of kind of cultural studies mm-hmm. is like there's a way in which certain events seem to sort of turn into something more than those events. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of like like the Kennedy assassination yeah, yeah. or the Nixon impeachment, right? Or the Watergate scandal and so on. Like these are like moments in history where like the truth in a way doesn't seem to matter as much as the story people want to tell about that. And and, and I wonder if you could talk about that just briefly in relation to your book. Cause it seems to me like that for me was like, this was a story about what Manson means. Right. Absolutely. You know, you reminded me, and I didn't, I don't think I got this in the book, but you reminded me there's a great African-American uh, poet and critic from the early seventies who talked about certain African-American cultural creations that had, um, and he borrowed this phrase from like, like NASA or some, some, uh, physical science, he talked about some things having a massive concentration of matter. And he, he shortened that to mass con, massive concentration. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. There are these moments and, and legal trials very often um, offer themselves up. You know, I would add the Sacco and Vanzetti case, like at least in where I live mm. in the Boston area, like we can't get done with that one. And, and partly it's because they, they open up these larger narratives that we need to contemplate and we need to diagnose and in the case of Manson, I've like, and this is bizarrely to my mind, I think one of the only um, uh, cultural artifacts that get it that really gets at this is is the television show Aquarius, the David Duchovny show, um, which really got that the Manson case was very much about this moment where right wing Californians were able to tell a story about the excesses of the counterculture in order to part, to begin shutting the door on the counterculture. Um, and beginning to put things in place. And I know we don't have time to really get into this, but, but you know, put things into place like you know, what we now refer to as the victim's rights movement, which has ended up, and, and I know this wasn't the intent of the folks who, who started it, but it's ended up being this very punitive right-wing um, you know, effort uh, by folks in and around the criminal justice system to, to you know, invent things like three strikes are out and no conjugal visits and, and all that kind of post-Reagan uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, extra punitive measures. And, and that's why I think the Manson case, it, the, the, the concentrate, the massive concentration it holds is um, about the countercultural challenge to the dominant culture in the 60s and the opportunity it gives for a lot of people to kind of hit reboot um, by opening up the case and saying, yeah, that was too much. Like that commune stuff or that free love stuff or that experimentation with drugs rock and roll, you know, the whole um, bucket of things that Manson seemed to, to be carrying, the case just, you know, gave so many people an opportunity to just kind of to, to hit, you know, hit reboot, start over, um, say that that's not working. Um, and it's to me, the most upsetting thing was that it wasn't just the predictable people like the assistant district attorney or the governor of California or the president of the United States, Nixon, who himself weighed in on the case. Um, but it was folks in and around the counterculture, too, who were freaked out by this, who were upset by this, and who then used the case to say, you know what, maybe we do need to rethink um, you know, some of these living arrangements. They didn't, I mean, the, the, 
except for a very small group of people, they didn't use it to say what they should have said, which was maybe this is about patriarchy. Maybe this is about male control, um, you know, of families and of young women. That took, you know, some doing in, in the 70s, folks like the great radical feminist criminologist Carlene Faith, um, who did this work with Leslie Van Houten and the others in prison to kind of say, how can we understand this as as a kind of um, horrible symptom of toxic patriarchy? Um, but that didn't really happen much um, and it didn't happen right away. Um, but mostly what happened was a lot of folks said, we can be done with that weird hippie stuff now um, and, you know, and, and start over. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. I got to say, it was great talking to you. I absolutely love the book. And we like barely scratched the surface of what's in there. So I really hope listeners will, will pick it up and check it out. Thank you so much, Brian. Truly a pleasure for me. Thank you.